So I ended up making a small little uh, toy of a character who's really well known around these parts called Golden Driller, who's a big statue. And so I just posted it to Instagram and they sold out like that. You're locked into another episode of How Creative People Make Money with Jonathan Pierce. It's a beautiful day to be learning something new. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the ride. The journey begins now. All right, so we're here with Eric Lee, who basically started his own toy line. But not just that, he did the unthinkable. He's actually selling it. He actually has sales. And so this is that kind of mind-blowing unicorn that we want to find and ask questions to. And so that's what this video is all about, about how that all happened. And my understanding is that it started with a chess set, which is still part of all of what you're doing with this. So that's my assumption is that's where all this is going to start. And so that's going to bring us to lap one, which is identify what you're really after that gets lost in all the noise. And Eric is someone that has so many talents. There's so many different things he knows how to do, can do. And what is, and the reason we're talking with him today is because he chose something really cool Instead of just doing something like just a whatever type thing, he went after something he really wanted to do and had success with it. And so that's where we can start is to say, where did this start? Where did this come from? What did was chess fight actually where this began? And you can kind of tell us what that is and and correct me if I've, you know, introed it the wrong way. No. OK. Yeah, that's, that's basically right. I've I've always been doing digital sculpting and modeling and characters and stuff. So that's always been in my periphery. Uh, but several years back, I went to a chess tournament uh, that my son was in and it was an elementary school chess tournament. I was just shocked at the vast number of kids that were there. And so I started thinking about how, man, there's, there's so many kids here wanting to play chess and excited about chess, but there's not really a chess product for kids that isn't something educational or a collector's item or, or something like that. So I thought it sure would be neat to create a product that kids could get excited about something that was collectible. Uh, you know, think Pokemon or Pogs when I was a kid uh, that would relate to chess. And so from there I started working on modeling chess pieces and, uh, and it wasn't before long that I was modeling them and printing them and creating them. Okay, so that will take us to lap two, which is assemble the physical and digital things you'll need to turn your idea into a reality. There's a couple of different moving pieces here as far as, you know, you making that happen. So what were the actual tools and did you already actually own some of these things? And that was maybe part of what made it so, so much of an obvious decision to say, hey, I can do this. Or did you not even have those 3D printers yet? Well, uh, again, I had all, all the equipment for modeling and, and creating those assets. I didn't have a printer uh, yet, but I had just sold something on eBay. I was like, you know what? I'm going to take this, turn around uh, and, and buy a printer. And so, uh, but the printer was just kind of baby step to what became a long kind of learning journey of other equipment I had to buy and other things I had to, techniques I had to learn and acquire. Um, so it turned from printer to uh, to then post-processing materials as well as casting materials and, and so on and so forth. 
Okay, so let's back up for a second. Now you said in the modeling, you said I already was kind of had experience modeling. Can you define that a little more? What does that mean? Do you mean just as an artist you had training to do modeling or what what could someone who doesn't know what you're talking about when you say, Oh, I, I do modeling, what what did that entail? So this is prior to you actually getting a printer or anything. Right. Uh, so again, I've always done art and uh, modeled and sculpted characters in 3D on the computer. Uh, I already had a lot of software that did that. Uh, I had recently really gotten into modeling and sculpting in VR, and that had become a kind of a new passion of mine. Uh, so I was already doing a lot of that uh, even before I had the printer. And again, it was just kind of a natural segue uh, to, to then start modeling and, and creating chess pieces. So you had been that had already been just part of you, you know, like part of just your natural interests and, and skills and what you already enjoyed doing. And so then you saw this opportunity where basically if I, if I understood right, it's like kids are playing chess, but these, but they're kids and they're, you know, working with these adult kind of not very cool kid, cool chess boards. And so that was kind of where you, you saw, something that you could fill. Yeah, that's, that's right. Again, all the chess sets out there, for the most part, are what I would describe as like playing card style, right? They're, they're the traditional, you know, uh, archetypes of the king, queen and stuff. Now, they also have, there's a Mario chess set out there. There's a, a Zelda chess set, stuff like those. With those, you pay a premium for them. They're not usually things that kids get out and play. They usually sit on a shelf kind of for display. Not to mention those collector sets. A lot of times you can't even identify who the king is, who the queen is. You know, uh, so I, I went about designing fun sort of uh, chess pieces that really have a lot of character and style that also have a very familiar uh, silhouette and shape. So it's very easy to recognize who the king, the queen and stuff are. So let's then talk about what, you know, this this lap two portion of actually setting up. OK, how do you make this take it from an idea and actually start you know, fleshing this out. So what was your first purchase that you realized you needed to make to, you know, to start this? Well, again, the first thing I knew I needed was a printer. So I, I got the printer uh, right away and kind of went through the process of figuring out, okay, what does it take to print these pieces? And are these, are these usable, you know, and sellable? And really it came down to, I could print maybe three pieces in the course of six or seven hours because the printer goes really slow. So if you want to start creating a lot of pieces, then you really need to look into uh, mold, creating molds of them, silicone molds, and casting them. Now that can be done in a, on a mass scale, uh, which I would like to do eventually, doing it overseas through, through a uh, factory or whatnot. But it's also, uh, you can also do it on a much smaller scale at home. Uh, so that's kind of what I said about doing. And there's all sorts of materials and equipment that I had to get for that, including uh, a pressure pot, which uh, you put a, a mold inside and it pressurizes the cast as it's being created because the cast creates bubbles as the chemical reaction is happening. Um, there's a vacuum chamber I had to get. Actually Let me pause you for one second here now. Now what you're talking about, are you talking about 3D printing or are you talking about casting? Yes. So, so I'll step back here and say, so when I realized that I needed to start molding and casting these, there's a whole process there. I take the print, I still print the piece, 
But then I take that print and I have to pour a silicone uh, mold, create a mold out of it. When I do that, I actually have to take that mixture that the piece is sitting in and I put it in a, a vacuum chamber, which sucks out all the little air bubbles that occur when the mold is, is being created. So had to get a vacuum chamber. Once I got the vacuum chamber, uh, which a friend of mine who was already kind of into this stuff lent me. So I was very thankful for that. Uh, I then have the mold and then you have to pour uh, resin or a liquid plastic in uh, inside of the mold, which then hardens into the piece. And so in order to do that, in the, it, the chemical reaction happens so fast, you can't actually use the vacuum chamber to suck out the, the bubbles. So instead, I had to get a pressure pot, which then pressurize it so the bubbles become microscopic. And so I had to do that. And I, I tried several times, and it was a big learning process to figure out, hey, can I do this without a pressure pot? Can I do? And I eventually came to the same conclusions everybody has. No, you have to do it this way. Uh, but there was definitely a learning process. It was, it was a lot of fun for me, honestly. That's a big part of why I get into these things is, is to learn. So from there, I then have and let a... Me, go ahead. And let me pause you one second just so that I can follow the, um, the, the order here. So as far as the 3D printer, would you say that its role in this process is it creates the initial character... And that's, that's really where its job is done. And then from there, what you've learned in, in mass, in your, in your own ability to mass produce these, that has to kind of stop there. You can't really count on the 3d printer to make all the pieces. You just have to use it for that purpose. And then you set it on this journey of the mold process. And that's what you're, you know, you just already explained the next step of what happened there, right? Is, is that kind of, am I following yeah. that right? Yeah, that's correct. Uh, whereas when you create the, do the plastic molding or the, the resin in the silicone mold, you can, in theory, you can pump those out in about 30, 30 minutes to an hour. Uh, but that's just with one piece. Now in a, in a uh, chess set, or I was creating teams, there were 16 pieces. And so I eventually had to invest in a lot more mold material, which that stuff isn't cheap. And I built what I call a cake mold, which is a big mold that had 16 pieces in them. So I would fill it all at once, put it in. So then in theory, uh, I would pull out a full team within a half hour to an hour. Now there's still a little bit of post-processing and stuff that I had to go through. But at the end of the day, I started running into this wall of, man, I'm still having to put in a lot of time and effort and equipment into just making, you know, one set at a time. And, yeah. and my ultimate goal was to really get the pieces down to where they were affordable, what I would call the, the birthday present price point. One of the things that has helped me the most in my own development have been the times I've been able to get advice and answers from other creatives and artists who had already accomplished what I was struggling to figure out on my own. The good news is the most successful creatives and artists of our time are sharing all these answers on podcasts and YouTube videos every day. However, the problem we've all become familiar with is the time it takes to find the episodes that are actually worth listening to. That's why you'll want to know about a site that solves this problem called showmewhotofollow.com. Since Show Me Who To Follow does the work of finding the podcasts and YouTube videos that provide the money-making answers creatives and artists are looking for, 
All you have to do is listen. You don't have to spend your time searching, swiping, and scrolling, and you don't have to get an hour into a podcast that just ends up being a long-winded story with no actionable value. Since all the work has been done for you, every time you get in the car to run an errand or take a lunch break is now an opportunity to uncover another secret to earning a living as a creative or artist. To try it out for free, just go to showmewhotofollow.com. The link will also be available in the description. You know, which is maybe around $30, $40, you know, uh, and it was just very hard for me to get at that price. I was selling them at that price, but it really wasn't worth it to me uh, to be selling one team for that. So what happened after that? Did you, did you decide to push pause on that or did, did you, was there some other solution you figured out? Right. Uh, so my first thing was to, to start just selling something and just allowing people to react and see how it would do. And, and I was able to sell quite a few. And in fact, I mean, pretty much sold out of the 50 teams that I made. Uh, but I was still selling them for a higher price point than I was comfortable with. And it was still taking me a lot of time and investment to, to create them to where even the price point I wasn't uh, terribly comfortable with was still a lot of work and it probably wasn't worth it at the end. So I did hit pause at that point and I'm like, all right, I'm going to have to figure this out. Uh, but in, in the meantime, I'm an artist. I'm always finding other little projects to kind of, you know, I just leapfrog to. So at that point I was still, uh, I had all this new, newfound knowledge and ability to create characters and mass produce them on a small scale. And so I, uh, I went out and I made a sculpture of a of the golden driller who's here in Tulsa, his big statue, and I made a small version of him and I styled it in the fashion of these little toy muscle wrestlers that they used to have when I was a kid. Okay, now this is a perfect segue, which I know where this is going into Okies, but for people who are going to be watching this video, one thing that, that one moment where they could be pulling their hair out in this video <laughs> would be like, wait a minute, you just skipped, wait a minute, you sold those? You know, so let's <laughs> okay, back, okay. yeah, let's back up and say, uh, and, and talk about, you know, lap three and four with the chess fight before we move on to Okies, and which I know that'll probably kind of be a similar story once we, once we get over to Okies, but let's go to lap three, which is start piecing together your marketing platform. So this is prior to you actually selling something where did you post this where it actually sold? So my marketing platform is probably a little different than what a lot of people might expect. I always had people coming to me and say, hey, you should sell these here. Hey, you should do this with these. You should do this. And that was all fine and great. But I honestly wasn't at the point where I wanted to sell them very quickly because again, I was not comfortable at the, <laughs> at the price point I was selling in them at and the amount of effort involved to where I wouldn't be comfortable like selling out like that and then having a demand for them and not being able to fill that demand. And so I was really just, I was marketing very, very low levels. I did go to a convention in town uh, because again, what I was really looking for is customer reaction and feedback. And that's ultimately what I was after. It wasn't to, to make money at that point. So, uh, so I did do a convention. It was great because it gave me a lot of one-on-one -on -one FaceTime with customers. And so let's talk, let's talk about that for a second. So, uh, and what was the name of the convention? 
Uh, so it was the Maker Fair, the Tulsa Maker Fair. Okay. So was that your first marketing, uh, you know, attempt or, you know, was that like before you even went on a website or got it online, the very first thing you did was go to that Maker event? So the Maker Fair wasn't the the first push. However, it was sort of my goal. It was kind of, okay, I'm going to do all these little things and then it's going to kind of, you know, come to a head at the Maker Fair. And so I knew in order to do that, I needed to set up a website. So I set up a website. I needed to create some social media accounts. So I did that. Uh, and I very quickly found that Instagram was was really great for me because uh, people would discover my pieces, would reach out to me, would ask how to buy them. And ultimately, that's what I've leaned out on more than anything, more than my website or anything is Instagram. Okay. And so I did those little pushes kind of as a buildup to get to Maker Faire. And then Maker Faire, I took all those pieces, kind of presented everything to the public at large uh, on a small scale. <laughs> so yeah. Uh, so then the, the way that that played out was you actually started posting it just on your normal social media. It sounds like you maybe even created specific pages or something for it as well. And of course, you know, you're just posting to your friends and, you know, on your normal accounts and all that. And so that was just kind of bringing awareness. And so you said you did it on Instagram at that point. So it sounds like that happened before you actually went to the Maker Fair. Yes. So, okay. So when people would re reach out to you on Instagram and say, how can I buy this? Did that, did any of those interactions result in a sale? Did you say like, okay, well, yeah, I'll, I'll sell you one and I'll mail it to you, pay me on PayPal or did any of that happen prior to the Maker Faire? Uh, yeah, so I set up an Etsy, which is where I, I sold from and uh, on Instagram, I would usually just point them to Etsy and sell that way. Okay, so was Etsy set up prior to the Maker Faire? Yes. Okay, so um, you basically sounds like created the social media and Etsy kind of at the same time, you're like, okay, I'm right. going to set this up, but gosh, there's got to be a way for them to actually pay for this and like run it through a checkout. So here we go. I'll have it on an Etsy page. That's right. Yeah. Okay. And, and for the Maker Fair, I got a little Square device and I used Square for that event to do payments. What was the experience like at, at the Maker Fair? I mean, the reaction, what, what was your, you know, what would you say that experience was like for you selling it there? So, uh, it was a great experience. Uh, again, it was it was kind of a culmination of this big effort, and it was exactly what I was looking for because it it told me who my target audience ultimately was for this this product. And so, who did you find out that was? Right. So, in a lot of ways, I it's it's hard to say if if I knew that going in because hindsight's twenty twenty. But uh, I, I found exactly what I expected is. There were kids that were interested, and these are the ones I really wanted to sell to, but the price point was really high and hard for the parents who were buying for the kids to swallow. However, there were all sorts of diehard chess set collectors that came in, and those were my, my customers there. Because again, they're used to paying these higher prices for these chess pieces. And so I sold quite a few uh, at the event uh, but the large majority of the people I sold to were people that owned tons of these collectible chess sets. And again, I, I started to feel like I was kind of becoming the product I was trying to avoid becoming. I was becoming this, you know, this specialty chess set that sat on a, a shelf somewhere as opposed to something that kids played with, you know. So let's pause here for a second and, and just walk through. I mean, really, 
even at this point in the conversation, you you've just described the complete cycle. You you know all four laps. You know, so you you did the marketing, and that's what we talked about with you know the social media, then to Instagram, then to Etsy. Things were happening there. Then you went to the Maker Fair, which I think is great to hear you talk about because I think a lot of people pass that stuff off, and you they were like, ah, oh, yeah, the events, whatever. I need to do it all online. But you learned, you got to actually see your customers and see who was coming and reacting. So that could be a valuable lesson for someone to say, man, yeah, okay, never thought about that. I'm going to visually, if I go to one of these events, these maker fairs or you know, some of these public things, I'm going to visually see and get some clues of who are the people that are interested in, in coming up to my table and wanting what I have to offer. So lap three, you, you accomplished that and you were already selling. Then lap four came with launch the sales process and begin failing forward but in your case, it was great because you didn't really experience much of that failing forward. You were starting to get some sales right away. And so that happened on Etsy. Then you went to the Maker Fair, got sales there as well, which is great. And that also you know, let you know who your customers were. So that's already a full cycle of all four laps just right there. And so, uh, but then you, you, had, you talked about some struggles with the mass production part of it and you know wanting to maybe fulfill your own desire to just make this happen on a smaller scale for now. And that's what went on to Okies. Uh, so we'll get into that in a second. But so what what happened after the fair? What happened after you ended that that fair experience? Well, yeah. And, and let me back up. One thing I should say is growing up as a creative or artist can be really, really confusing. Since your high school teachers had no idea how creatives and artists made a living, they told you to do something else with your life. Since your parents also didn't know how creatives and artists made a living, they told you the same thing. Then, after going against everyone's advice and getting $150,000 into debt to go to art school, you found out upon graduation that the one thing they forgot to teach you was how to make a living as a creative or artist. So now, you continue to stay wherever you ended up in life, thinking there is no answer. But that's only because no one ever told you about Camp Shark Smarts. Camp Shark Smarts accomplishes something no one else seems to be able to figure out, which is to provide a framework that successfully shows creatives and artists how to support themselves financially, and this is the important part, as creatives and artists. Right now, there are creatives and artists hiding in plain sight in your same community doing just that. They're not having to try to fit in at a job they hate, and they're getting paid really well to meet all kinds of artistic needs and wants. Much like in The Wizard of Oz, the answer you've been looking for has been within your grasp all along. It's also something you're currently being exposed to on a daily basis. Chances are, all you've ever needed was someone to explain it to you in a way that made sense. So if you're ready to finally know what it feels like to make a living as a creative or artist, head over to CampSharkSmarts.com and start learning how for free. The link will also be available in the description. And let me back up. One thing I should say is many moons ago, I did a webcomic. And as a result of that, I attended many conventions as, you know, doing, promoting my webcomic and stuff. And so I, again, I set that Maker Fair up as a goal, knowing that I was going to get to have that interaction that, that was kind of, the, get to talk to the fanboys and stuff like that, right? And get a lot of that feedback. And uh, it was exactly what I was looking for for those reasons. 
but in terms of what happened after, uh, again, I, I feel like I kind of learned a lesson. Uh, and before I had started making them on my own, I had done a lot of research into mass producing them because that's kind of where I saw this thing. And I knew I would have the lowest uh, cost getting into it. Well, a lot of upfront costs, but the lowest cost per unit, you know, be able to sell them as cheap as I needed to if I mass produced. And so after I had hit Maker Fair, I realized, you know, hey, this pricing just isn't really where I think it needs to be. And I felt like I was at the end of my rope being able to make them myself. There are certainly more efficiencies I could do and I could definitely hone that practice in, but it's not going to drive the price down enough to where I think it would really uh, be profitable in the long run. So I kind of knew I would have to figure out some next steps in, toward, in uh, terms of getting mass production. Part of that can come alongside the idea of doing a Kickstarter, but in order to do a successful Kickstarter, I feel like I have to build an audience. So I started kind of going all the way back to that step. Maybe what I need to do is start building an audience somehow, whether it's continuing to make these chess pieces by hand or some other way, uh, and then eventually bring it full circle back to a Kickstarter and using the audience that way. Um, so I, I put it on pause and I started to kind of look through some other things. And again, I had some other, uh, I always have other project ideas popping up. So through all that, I, I've learned so much. I feel like I'm a superhero. I've got all these powers, but I don't really know exactly how to best use them. And so, uh, so I was looking for other little characters and, and figures to make. So I ended up making a small little uh, toy of a golden driller who's a big statue and I made sort of an 80s toy uh, version of him who's based on these 80s uh, muscle action figure guys. I've got one right here. So yes. this is my golden driller piece. I don't know how well you can see it in the lighting. Uh, yes. So I, I did some renderings of him. I'm like, okay, this guy would be a lot of fun. And so I just posted it to Instagram and it blew up. People were, you know, asking, hey, how can I get my hands on those? You know, I'm really interested. And uh, I ended up kind of stumbling into some other groups and found that there's a whole niche of toy collectors that are really at, after these things. They're called Keshi, which are basically these little fleshy rubber uh, action figures from the 80s. And uh, there are also a lot of designers that are making, you know, modern Keshi and stuff like that. So I'm like, okay, well, it's a little bit different casting these in rubber as opposed to plastic. So I learned that. That wasn't very hard. And I made an initial run of like 15 of them. So that initial run that you made, that was, that was through the cake mold cast process that you're yeah. talking about. You kind of learned more how to use a different material to actually work with to make it you know, be what you wanted it to be. But you, you made all those yourself. At your, That's like right. In your garage or something. Okay. That's right. I was able to use all the processes I've learned and all the equipment I've obtained to, to make these uh, you know, just in a matter of a week or so. And once I did that, I posted them online and they sold out like that. And nice. Okay, wait a minute. Let's pause there. Where did you post? Where did they sell out? So I posted them primarily on Instagram, also on my own personal Facebook and some of the Facebook groups that I had become a part of. Uh, okay. And again, they sold out immediately and lights started going off because I had priced these guys, one figure here at uh, $20, which is what a lot of the other indie toy guys out there were pricing them at, okay? 
let me pause you there too. For someone else getting started, and you know, one one thing about you is you've got a rich history of um, work that you've done, and you're a part of so many groups. And I don't know to what extent, but I'm just assuming from what I know about you that you've got people that know you, that follow you, that are checking out the art that you do, and all that. So let's say from the perspective of someone who's they're brand new, they're just getting started, they don't have that kind of history like you do. What of those sales that you made? What percentage of that would you say were people that already kind of knew of you uh, from your history and your connections and, and, and all of that? And what percentage, if you had to guess, would be just people that don't know you at all and they're just like, wow, that's cool, I'm going to buy it, just to kind of help someone give a, a, get some perspective? All right, so, so you're right. I've been doing uh, characters and art and stuff for a long time. However, I've always done a very poor job of uh, having like portfolio websites and, and again, building an audience on social media. It's something I've actually done a fairly poor job of in the past. And so just to a large degree, this was uh, a, a new thing for me to be posting. Now, of course, I have f close friends and family that uh, supported me, but I would say definitely a majority of the people uh, that purchased were uh, were new to me and were new because of my Instagram posts uh, and because of me joining some of these uh, Facebook groups. And so, and these, these Facebook groups would basically, I mean, I, just to help bring some context to it, these would just be niche Facebook groups that right. all of us might have a certain interest in or whatever. And so, you know, the fact that you're a part of these Facebook groups, it's a direct link to you know, a, a very great match for them right. to see this product, which would be a very different experience of just doing a, a normal Facebook profile post, but you're going directly to people that are share your same interest. So that sound, sounds like what we're learning in that is the, the value of being a part of some of these Facebook groups that are among, are, that are part of the niche that you're actually interested in and, and engaging there and being a part of that. Absolutely. And, and these people in the Facebook groups, they are the collector types, kind of like some of the people I'd run into at the Maker Fair, right? These are people, they like to have one of everything. And uh, it was very apparent as I continued to make figures that I had a lot of repeat customers who, again, they always wanted to have at least one, sometimes two or three of everything I made. So I had a lot of repeat customers. But again, lights started going off because I was pricing these guys what Everybody else was pricing theirs at $20 for a figure, which again, I felt like was high, it's, but it's a collector art piece. So it, it makes sense. Uh, whereas I was selling uh, my chess teams, I was selling eight, eight figures, same process, you know, eight of these guys for 40. And here I'm yeah. selling one at 20 and I'm selling out like that. Wow. Uh, and so I'm like, man, this is something I got to keep doing. And so I, I made some more drillers and sure enough, I sold out again. And so then I'm like, well, hey, uh, th there's, I don't have like this special mold that I have to keep reusing. I can, I can keep making more guys. And so I did, I started making new versions. And again, that's when I found, hey, these people that bought my drillers are all of a sudden buying again. And again, I would say a large majority of these people were new customers to me. One of the things that was fascinating to me is all my characters are, are based on Oklahoma figures. But the large majority of people I'm selling to aren't, aren't from Oklahoma at all. They're just tapped into the idea of these collectible, you know, uh, toy figurines. They, 
they have a hankering for these guys, you know? Now, that is extremely interesting because I think me and probably everyone else who would be watching this video would immediately assume, oh, okay, yeah, that was kind of a marketing move. You, you choose this figure that is in Oklahoma that everyone would know. And yeah, you know, people from Oklahoma are going to buy that because they, but what we just learned in, in, in it's, which is a big surprise is sounds like that was not the case. It had, had a totally different direction, which was a totally different reason. And it was just, Hey, it's this new thing to collect. I don't have this. I'm interested in this new thing that I haven't seen before. And I got to have it. Is that kind of what was going on? Yeah. And one of the great things about this approach is I I'm pulling in these collectors, but there's like an overlap of people that are from Oklahoma and, and love Oklahoma memorabilia, you know, and it's like, I can continue to satisfy these guys, but I can do it in a way to where I can also reach out to other audiences, depending on the sorts of figures I make. Yeah. And this really is, goes into full blown urine Okies mode. And, and so this is somewhat of a, a repeat of the same laps that we just went through with chest fight, but this is basically the same uh, process you went through to, to sell Okies, except through what you learned with chess fight, you were able to make much better money per piece because of all those learning curves that happened the first go round. Is that, is that what you say is right? Yeah, that's right. Uh, I was, I definitely had a much, uh, I was definitely making more money doing it this way uh, to where I could, I could reinvest and feel good about the, the money and the time I was spending, you know, whereas yeah. on chess fight, I started to feel like every time I'm making some, I'm just losing I'm, I'm losing time or money or something that I'm investing. Right. And so I, here yeah. I felt like, Hey, this is a pretty sustainable, uh, model. However, I'm still uh, in this situation where I'm, I'm producing on these on a small scale. So again, when it comes to marketing, I'm still not at that place where I want to sell hundreds of these because that is not something I can fulfill at this point. Uh, without going to mass production. However, this is something that is sustainable for me and to where I can continue to build an audience to hopefully eventually get to that larger number. Uh, so that's sort of where I am right now is I'm able to keep doing this uh, and continue to grow my audience. One of the things I go round and round about now is, you know, I, I made these drillers, I made more of them, I made more of them, and then all of a sudden I'm making other characters and then I'm making more and more because I keep selling out. At some point, I have to decide, do I want to keep making the drillers or do I just want to say, no, that was limited run. You're out. You missed out. And the great thing is, is if I do that, I create a little bit more of a demand for the figure that's, that's are coming because they know, hey, if I miss out, I missed out. So I'm sort of, I, I'm sort of in that balancing act right now uh, because I do have people coming to me. Hey, you know, is there any chance you're going to make more of this guy? And I'm thinking, man, I'm making, I've got all these other plans right now. And so that's kind of the stage I'm at right now and figuring out how to best, again, continue growing my audience as well as uh, I'm, I'm growing my portfolio and my experience as well as I, as I create these. You know, what you just said there is, is really what this video is all, all about is you started with an idea. You, you go to your kid's chess, you know, event, you come up with this idea, you go through this whole learning curve of all this process of doing all this. 
and you had an idea. You turned that idea into something real by getting the 3D printers and working through all that. And then unbelievably, you have people knocking down your door saying, I want more of the driller in this thing that started out as just this idea, you know, that you had. So for most people watching this video, that is that just, you know, unreal scenario that they're desperately just trying to figure out how they could find themselves in that position. And we've just basically broke it all down and talked about all of it. So the, the big question that'll be on everybody's mind is, where are these people coming from? How are they coming to you? And so would you say that, that they're coming to you, these people are coming to you from just the Etsy page that you made, the Facebook groups you're a part of, the social media accounts? Is that truly, just literally, that's all, all that uh, you have set up that's causing these people to come to you? That's all that was necessary to create yeah. that? Well, like I said, by and large, I had done a pretty poor job of really marketing myself as an artist. I had done some kind of half-hearted efforts here and there. And so my large focused efforts had been as a, a, a start through Chess Fight on my Instagram. There were some other projects I had had in the past. Specifically, I did a kid's book that I'd done a push for as well. Uh, many years ago. And so I, I do have some of an audience from that. Uh, but certainly my biggest audience has, has come as a result of the Okies. That's when it really, the floodgates really started opening. Uh, but they st certainly started at Chess Fight. Uh, if, if that answers your question. <laughs> yeah. And I would, and I would say specifically more so with that, that does answer the question, but to even get more specific about it, but would you say like, Hey, Jonathan, I set up that. Here's what I've got, Jonathan. I've got the Etsy account. I've got the Facebook groups that I'm a part of. I've got, you know, just my regular going on social media and doing my thing. And that's the only way I'm connected. Is that true? Is that the only things you really have set up? And that's where these people are all coming from? Uh, I would say by and large, yes. I mean, there's, okay. there's always other people that I meet through doing random jobs you know, as an artist, I mean, I have a body of work that follows me. And so I'm always doing stuff for people and, and they bring on other people. Uh, but I would say the largest amount of growth has come from what you're describing. Uh, one of the neat things that's come out of this is I've also uh, had people reach out to me to uh, do some custom toy sculpts. And I've gotten a little bit more into uh, toy sculpting. And I've had some freelance work come my way as a result of that, too. That's really interesting. Okay, yeah, just be, just from the sheer fact of people seeing, oh, this guy does this. Hey, can you do this for me? A lot of those scenarios came out of it too. Yeah, I have a lot of very specialized skills and abilities at this point uh, in regards to that niche, which is something I'm very passionate about and something I would love. You know, I, I've said many times kind of throughout this is like at the end of the day, I, I want to become a toy sculptor, a toy maker, a creator okay. of toys, right? An artist that creates toys. And, and I've kind of been building my way towards that uh, throughout this whole series of events. So that's more of maybe the macro vision of, of everything that Chess Fight and Okies all fit inside of. Well, the really exciting part about all this is that you've already hit a home run from the aspect of you made this happen. It's working. It's being sold. The fact that you started 
from just an idea all the way to now you've sold i what is it oh you know more than 100 you know oh yeah 200 I, I'm probably in the 200 range. I, yeah, I'm somewhere between. I, I was counting at one point, and then I, I missed count, and I was like, well, I can't, I can't do anything about it now. Like that is a major accomplishment, you know, just in and of itself. And so that is just a success, period, paragraph by itself, right there. Thanks for tuning in, and don't forget to show the love by subscribing and leaving a review. Oh, yeah. And for all those creatives and artists out there ready to be earning more money than most college graduates, head over to CampSharkSmarts.com and start learning how for free. You know we're already looking forward to seeing you on the next one. So take care, and until then, we'll be seeing you on all the socials at CampSharkSmart in the mix.